welcome to this week's edition of the Retech Podcast. Uh, my guest this week is Michael Ross. Now, Michael currently serves as the Chief Scientist at Edited, the leading data scientist insights and analytics SaaS company for local brands and retailers. Now, he leads projects impacting the future of the retail tech customer centricity and data automation more on that when we chat now interestingly he also holds positions as a non-exec director of sainsbury bank n brown and as an executive fellow at the london business school with a strong background in retail tech having co-founded both dynamic action the cloud-based solution connecting data for retailers as well as figleaves.com one of the uk's first online retailers where he served as ceo now he's also published a book the customer base audit which is a structured approach to understanding customers buying behavior and the health of your customer base and that is the short version michael welcome thank you paul good to be here so um i said this to one or two guests but not many um i i often sort of go on to linkedin or google people and um it's very impressive there is pages and pages about you uh, you've been a very very busy man have you not well there's michael ross the serial killer which is obviously <laughs> not not me um so most of the content i think online but i'm i'm there's a lot of content because i'm old and because i think when you've been around for, for as long as i have and from the sort of very very day, early days of the internet um yes i i've certainly had a busy has a have, have a, had a busy 30 years well there you go and, and modesty comes out in some of those nice little comments that people post as well so uh, uh well done you for that so look before we get going as it were and we talk about the now um sure as we alluded to, your background is quite interesting. Yep. And I want you to talk me through that. But before you do, you've got to promise not to be too modest because we want to know the details. But go way back when. You're Michael, short trousers at school, yes. staring yes. out of the window. Yes. What did you actually want to do? I did. I wanted to do two things when I was at school, which was St. Jess. So the two, the two, the only two things I was good at at school, I was very good at maths um, and I was good, very good at chess. Um, so I um, wasted my youth, um, wasted my youth on a chessboard and we were sort of national school champions a few times. Um, and it's all I ever wanted to do. So then I, I did a degree in maths um, and I guess that was now started that in 1986 so i was studying um applied statistics and chaos theory and those sorts of topics and what is today called artificial intelligence at that point was just called applied statistics um so i sort of felt like a lot of the things that are going on in the world now will come back to i was sort of learning a long time ago um i then came out of, of university and, and again one of the themes of my career i describe myself as an accidental entrepreneur i'm really I'm, you know, as my wife will say, you know, why, why did you ever think of starting a business? Um, but I've now done four businesses um, in my life. And the, and the first one I did was when I graduated, um, it was a business called Footprint, um, which was publishing 3D maps around the UK. Um, so I ended up selling advertising. My, my business partner was an architect and drew these beautiful maps, um, started in Cambridge. And we built a business over over four years. Um, um, he bought me out, as I say, for a seven-figure sum um, back in 1993. Um, Unfortunately, it included pets. That was the, um, the only, only problem there. And so then in 90, I found myself in 94 um, looking for a job. Um, and I uh, um, interviewed when I, I, I graduated with McKinsey 
Um, and then, anyway, I got a job second time around at McKinsey, and I thought this would be a, a great place to go. And 94, uh, for people who remember, is really when the internet kicked off. Um, it's when Amazon launched um, in 94. It was very, very exciting times. And the first project I did at McKinsey was the BBC's internet strategy. Um, so you can say I was in the right place at the right time. Um, I spent five years at McKinsey, um, mostly focused on sort of internet digital related topics. Then got to 1999. Um, and again, the world was, was in a frenzy. It was the first big dot-com bubble. Um, I think Google, um, Google had launched. Um, there were, Amazon had just IPO'd. And it was one of those things that, you know, consulting at McKinsey in, in, in the internet felt like sort of selling shovels during the gold rush. You, you know, it was, it was fun, it was busy, but you felt like if you wanted to be part of it, you, you need to be out there. Um, so I, I left McKinsey, sort of looking back, it seems pretty um, crazy, crazy thing to have done and, and, and went into women's underwear. And big leaves got um, there had been a, a, a pre-existing business um, called Easy Shop, and Easy Shop had um, been, been around for a, for a few months. Um, it was selling mostly perfume that was um, illegally sourced from a lock-up garage in Arsenal, um, and we were selling a bit of hosiery. And we also then had some fun run-ins with Stelios, who was suing everybody at the time um, with easy in their name um, and so a few things came together we realized we needed to change our name um, we couldn't really sell the perfume so we ended up focusing on on women's underwear we thought that was a really interesting category there were lots of websites at the time selling um, stuff for men there were very few selling things that were more female focused lingerie was a very complex category um, lots and lots of SKUs, lots of brands. If you if you were interested in buying multiple brands, um, there were very, very few retailers that actually sold a good, good selection. And if you were not the core size, it was very hard to get your size. So um, figleaves.com, um, it's a story there. Figleaves.com had been a US um, online retailer. Again, they went bust um, in sort of the crash of 2000, and we bought their name and 3,000 baseball caps. Um, the only, only assets of theirs that had any value and, and we rebranded and we had this sort of, again, this incredibly good run. We were, we were um, you know, in 2001, um, I, I, I remember having a conversation with Nick Robertson, in fact, Nick Robertson, who's the founder of ASOS, um, came to visit us I mean, North Finchley. I mean, he later told me that, that we really annoyed him because we had shipped more orders by 10 o'clock in the morning. Um, than he shipped in, in the whole day. And at that point, we were bigger than ASOS. We were about three times the size of ASOS. Um, a couple of years later, ASOS was five times the size of Big Leaves. And reasons I'll come back to. And so I had a, I had a really great adventure. Um, I was CEO for, for, for seven years. Um, there are lots of things I learned at Big Leaves that have, that have sort of been defining my, my career um, thereafter. And I'll... I'll Pick out three because of sort of bring, bring, bring them to life. The first one was we didn't understand what was driving our growth. Um, you know, in the early days of the internet, growth was being driven by lots of customers coming online for the first time. Um, but the challenge, as I understand now, is 
our customer retention wasn't great. And particularly the the, the order frequency for our for our loyal customers, the, the loyal Higley's customers buying maybe two and a half times a year versus a loyal ASOS customer or a loyal Net-A-Porter customer was buying 20 times a year. And so what, what ended up happening was as our customer acquisition started to, started to slow, growth got very, very, very hard. And we didn't understand what was really this sort of customer acquisition and retention dynamics. That's been one big, big theme of my life. The second thing we did that was, was um, you know, we, we 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 were we were we thought we were a pretty smart management team. We had lots of metrics. We were measuring lots of things, and then in two thousand and six, um, I hired someone to take over for me. We, we we were doing a big funding round. I'd reached my sort of operational limits, and, and um, we hired um, a guy called Robin Tyrrell, who um, had been running Amazon UK up to that point, and Robin. Um, Robin came in and um, I remember very, very quickly, he came to the business after two weeks, he sat me down and he said, Michael, he said, you're, you're measuring all the wrong things. And I said, you know, Robin, what, what do you mean? Can you give me some examples? And he said, you know, Michael, I'll, I'll give you lots of examples, but I'm going to focus on one. He says, you're telling me that you're 92% in stock at the SKU level. He said, he said, it doesn't matter. He says, what matters is, are we in stock of the products that customers are looking at? And um, that's pretty interesting. I'd never thought of that. Um, and, um, you know, we, we, again, we thought we were all pretty smart and that was not something we'd ever measured. And we, we measured this sort of viewed availability and it turned out to be 70% was horrible. That's really the sort of the customer's experience of availability. And then we got into, well, why was it so bad? And it turned out, you know, we had lots of, you know, crappy marketing that was landing traffic onto products that were sold out, never existed, or was very fragmented. We had lots of clever sort orders on the website, recommendation zones, who were very good at recommending best sellers, but not very good at actually pushing products down when they were, were selling out and fragmented. So the the customer really experience of availability was horrible. And then we thought, well, you know what? Clearly, we need to start focusing on that. We need to sort of fix this. But what we then realized was that viewed availability was the sort of intersection of our digital marketing teams who were driving traffic, our website teams who were fiddling with the website, the actual quantities, um, our supply chain teams who actually worked out how the whole inventory and supply chain. There was no individual who woke up in the morning thinking and worrying about viewed availability. Um, that was a, a real moment for me. And, and again, that has been a big defining theme. So when I then exited Big Leagues in, in 2006, um, I created the next business. Um, again, um, it was I'm working with a, a private equity group called the Bauble Group. Again, people may remember that there would be sort of Icelandic raiders who at certain points um, owned a lot of the UK high street, although I say owned in the loosest possible sense of the word, because it seemed that it was leveraged on on, on Iceland. Um, but um, I, I started working with Alba Group, they had all these retailers, and they had this idea um, with 
which was to create a business that could sell services to the to the to, to the sort of the group, but also be independent and could sell sell the businesses outside. Um, then what we ended up doing is is we partnered with West Coast Capital, which was um, Sir Tom Hunter's private equity group in Scotland, and we created a business called Ecomera. And Ecomera, from the get-go, was a business that was trying to do two things. Um, it was trying to offer technology platforms. So could we go to these retailers and offer them a kind of an end-to-end technology solution? Um, but then secondly, based on my experience from, from Figley's, how could we bring um, a sort of a data layer and how could we bring the sort of frankly the brilliance of how Amazon thinks about data to 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 retailers? So so we created Ecomera with these two divisions. Uh, um, I, you know, with perfect hindsight, I should have sort of realised that 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 selling technology to retailers is one of the most challenging, complicated. Someone later said to me, Michael, you know, when you're running a retailer's technology platform, you'll never get thanked. And you'll always get criticized when things go wrong. It's a sort of um, very, very, very challenging, challenging business to be in. But we ended up um, with some great clients, um, House of Fraser, Asda, Jaeger, TMD, now sadly, lots of retailers who no longer exist. But at the time, they were some of the really early sort of e-commerce pioneers. Um, and then, so we had this e-commerce platform, and then in parallel, we created this data and analytics platform. And, and the vision of the data analytics platform, which became known as dynamic action, was how do you bring together all of the sort of data that sits within a retail enterprise, um, web analytics data, customer data, digital marketing data, inventory, supply chain returns, all of these disparate data sources, how do you bring them together in one place, help retailers understand how much money did I make yesterday? Um, and how do I use all of this data to actually make faster, better decisions? So it was it was was combined. I learned at McKinsey in terms of, sort of structured problem solving. What I'd seen at Bigly. Uh, with my yeah, there's a significant problem. Um, and then we, we were lucky enough, we, we, we um, hired um, as an advisor, um, a wonderful man called Andreas Weigand, who had been chief scientist of Amazon and worked very closely with Bezos. And that became the kind of the founding, um, you know, the, the, the ideas that went into dynamic action. So that again was a, was a very, very interesting journey. Um, at various points, at some point, we spun off. Ikemera got sold to Dentsu, which was the large Japanese um, ad agency. They bought the sort of technology platform, and we spun out Dynamic Action as a sort of a separate business. Um, and then we carried on to sort of refinance that, and then got to 20, well, lose track of time, 2021. And then um, we sold the Dynamic Action business to Edited, um, and I went along and, and became chief scientist of, 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 of it's interesting i mean thank you so much for for taking us through that journey um i, I was on a bizarre flashback because i i personally uh left physical retail if that's the right word and went to work for an e-commerce uh a trade association a us-based one initially uh called commerce net 
um, right. in the mid nineties. But all of those um, steps uh, and initiatives and the changes um, and through the bubble bursting, whatever it was, 99, yes. um, it's it sort of given me, uh, I'm not sure it's palpitations or, or good <laughs> flashbacks to, to all of those steps along the way. Um, so, and you ended up the commercial side and, and somehow I ended up at the European Commission um, with those early e-commerce journeys, talking yeah. to emerging markets about how to quote unquote catch up. Uh, which, again, looking back, was quite patronising what what we were pushing out from the uh, from the EU. Yeah. But uh, yeah. anyway, enough about that. I'm, I'm sure uh, your chapters on that are far more interesting than mine. I was spending sixty no, percent of my budget on uh, on translation and travel. <laughs> yeah, it, well, look, it's it's been a, it's been an amazing, you know, as you said, people who've been on the journey for twenty five years. I mean, it, it's it 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 it's it's amazing. I mean, I've got young kids, but I also you know, on the side, I lecture at London Business School, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm often lecturing to people who are in their sort of mid, mid to late twenties, and yeah, it's just quite strange to think, you know, I started big leaves before they were born. The very um, the, the natural consequence of getting old, but it's, it's very strange because it feels all these things feel feel like yesterday. Um, yeah. And so, and then yeah, in parallel, in parallel um, to sort of my executive career. Um, as you mentioned at the beginning, so I've, I've been lucky enough to, to sit on boards along the way. And that, for me, is always, um, you know, it's a real privilege because you you get to see, um, you get an amazing insight into the challenges of actually operating a business in different businesses and in different industries. Um, uh, navigating the sort of, firstly, the e-commerce change, but now everything to do with, um, you know, the data revolution, the AI revolution, sort of, you know, it, it, it's a sort of absolute constant of, of, of change and transformation. So, um, yeah, currently um, boards of Sainsbury's Bank, um, N Brown, and, you know, I just, yeah, it's a privilege and I, I learn every interaction, just the, I guess, the real reality of what it means to sort of be operating retail businesses in this, in this environment. Um, yeah. and then I guess yeah, the book maybe I'll just finish and then that really is everything is I mean the, the, the book the book's been an adventure I mean I um, 10 years ago I was lucky enough to to I was in Boston and a friend of mine was at business school and invited me to a lecture on customer analytics because she knew I was interested in customer analytics and it's and it's one of these moments in life where I was I was I was in this lecture thinking, oh, my God, all of the things that I didn't understand when I was at Big Leagues is all the stuff that is actually I was being taught about and, and how to understand growth of customer bases. And the lecturer was talking about the two sort of world experts in this, um, Bruce Hardy and Pete Fader, um, who'd written all the sort of seminal papers on customer lifetime value and customer growth. Anyway, I went home, I looked them up, and it turned out Bruce Hardy was at London Business School, you know, at time a few hundred metres from where I lived. And um, I stalked him for a couple of years. Um, he finally agreed to meet me for a coffee. Um, we became, you know, collaborators and friends. And then a few years later, he said, look, would I come and teach a course with him at London Business School, which is how I got there. And after we taught the course for a couple of years, he said, look, Michael, we really should write a book about this stuff. 
um, and that led to, to, to this sort of customer-based audit book, which I, I describe as a thriller, uh, but a thriller about customer analysis. So it's, uh, um, and, and so yeah, that, that, that sort of, for me, brings me full circle to what I started off um, with, with, with my, my challenges of growing fig leaves. I now truly understand now what I, what I wish I'd known um, 25 years ago. Goodness knows, and, it, and fig leaves was one of the darlings of the dot-com boom as it was. Goodness knows how uh, stratospheric it uh, it could have been uh, with that information. Uh, indeed, indeed. You know, what, what could have been, but yes. So, so look, right up today, uh, edited, which is where you are now. Tell me a little bit about that business and, and what it does. Sure, so the heritage edited business was focused on market intelligence. So... Edited is is no no question is sort of the world leader in, in in understanding. So we are going out every day scraping products and prices from um, fashion retail businesses and beauty retail businesses around the world and translating that into market insight. So we have this sort of unbelievable insight into what's going on. In terms of what products are being launched, what categories are being launched, where are things being expanded, re reduced, um, prices being put up, reduced. So they've got this kind of edited. We have this wonderful view of what's going on in, in, in the marketplace. Um, and dynamic action historically was all inside the enterprise intelligence. Yeah. And you know, what is driving profit and in inventory? So the vision of the acquisition was really bringing those two things together. You know, if you um, are a retailer, wanting to make trading decisions um what we call in the uk trading decisions um you know i.e the 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 day-to-day -day and week-to-week -week decisions around price and promotion and inventory and marketing exposure what you really want is to understand what's happening inside inside your business but also what's happening in the market so that if you're going to make a promotional decision or if you're going to expand a category you really get the kind of the combination of your own data what's selling what's not doing so the vision is around how do you bring all that data together and and it's it's there's no question it's an overwhelming amount of data you know what i just described even within the dynamic action world you know a typical client is sending us 50 data feeds a day um so challenges of together translating it into something that is useful and consumable um so we care a lot about we're very we're very decision centric so rather than getting misty-eyed and overexcited about data and dashboards we, we our starting point is what are the decisions retailers are making and how can they make those decisions you know better faster more surgically and then how do we corral all, all of this data um, to enable that to happen? Yeah, and, and there's been no shortage of data in retail for, for many years, but you're right, it's it's deciding what to do with it. You know, for an awful long time, retailers would, would talk about drowning in the data, not knowing where to focus, what yeah. to do, and how to reach a decision. So uh, I'm guessing, you know, you, you're pushing on a little bit of an open door, if you like, if you're taking some of that, thought away and, and so you're actually providing recommendations or summaries is that where you're getting to with yes. clients absolutely 
Look, absolutely. I think I think you're, you're, the way you, you, you characterize it is spot on, and it's very interesting. I mean, you, you look at old retail, and I remember talking, I remember a great conversation with Kevin Stanford, who was the founder of Karen Millen, and and he said, you know, you know, he was a brilliant old school retailer, and he said, my, he said I could I can run my business on a, on the back of an envelope. He said, you know, I've got whatever eighty stores, and he said I could look at my store like the lights. Um, and he said, if all my stores are up 5%, except for two, he says, I'll tell you what, he says, I can visit those stores and I will tell you in 30 seconds why they're not performing. And sort of historically, the construct of retail meant that it was pretty easy to work out what was going on. And you could physically go and walk the store and talk to customers. And now we enter the sort of the digital world or the, or the on-customer-centric or the on whatever you want to describe it. It's an overwhelming amount of data. You know, we've gone from retailers not having a huge amount of data, but clearly you had enough data to make good enough decisions. And the decisions you could make were relatively blunt. You know, there weren't, weren't that many levers to pull to a digital omni world where you've got enormous amounts of data. You've got enormous numbers of levers to pull. It, it's a very, very complex puzzle. So exactly what the problem we're solving is we recognize humans are pretty important in retail. You, you, you don't you don't want to try and say, let the machine take over, we'll tell you what to do. We what we see our role is is to make recommendations to, to sort of identify opportunities for action in two clips. Um, and again, to bring this to life, you know, you know, a retailer, every retailer will know. Know, what, how much inventory value they're sitting on or what their product conversion rate is you know what we can tell them is well, how much of your inventory value has not been viewed um, how much of your inventory value has been viewed that isn't converting you know if it's not converting how much of it is because it's not price competitive and so those those sorts of insights you only get by sort of combining and joining multiple data sources together and that's our that's our mindset is um, you know try and make it easy for retailers, but recognize retail is complex, it's messy. And, and if you if you think you can just sort of, you know, automate decisions and, and, and put your feet up, you'll get a nasty shock. Yeah, it reminds me actually, in, you know, the early days of when I was running stores a long time ago, um, you know, the, the ordering process and the merchandising was largely done from experience of the store management yes. and the area management team. Then and, and the ordering was done on a on a paper book and keyed in. Yes. And it went automated uh, and it was a very blunt instrument. And the out of stocks just went through the roof because the, the, the parameters that have been put in. And it and, and actually it was only so, when we then went back to the, the system making a recommendation and store management yeah. able to override it because the store manager in a particular store would know. That the, that the circus was visiting or the fate was in town or the schools had broken up a week earlier and so could make those tweaks. So it, 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 it was certainly, you know, the seesaw was moving in those early days. But, 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 but you put your finger on it. Mean, again, it's a brilliant example. This idea of sort of, there's a spectrum. If there's a human in the loop, on the loop or out of the loop. And if you take a human out of the loop, you, you end up with real, real disasters. And we see lots of examples of sort of automation bomb wrong. So the key is to really be thoughtful about the sort of human plus machine teams and get the machines to do what machines are good at, humans to do what humans are good at. 
but but what you described of you know system recommending the human being able to override is a brilliant example it's very very hard it's not how most systems get developed you know what ends up happening is you know trust us you've got ai um we'll just automate everything and we we had some clients recently who you deployed a sort of an, an ai powered markdown system um and it was an absolute disaster the ceo told me it had wiped out you know a million dollars of profit because what had happened was um it had gone live in april um it would be, be applied to their swimwear department the first two weeks of april had been a bit chilly and so the system thought they were going to sell 100 units um, actually they sold 50 units it panicked and decided to mark down you know 100,000 units um when in fact anyone would say oh it's only 50 units don't worry about it but no the system predicted massive overstocks and then took a very catastrophic action and because they designed a human out of the loop system um by the time that someone noticed it was it was too late um so i think i think we are in this territory of saying actually how you design human machine teams um is i think going to be one of the sort of the, the big topics in retail for the next for the next 10 or 15 years and and that brings me on to you know you, we already said you know you advise a, a raft of retailers and you've mentioned ai a few times you know when you're advising people what are you saying the role of ai in the industry's future is going to be i mean it's a bit of a crazy topic Right yes. now, you know, I hear people saying, what do I need to know? What's relevant? I think a lot of people are trying to yes. understand. But what's your take on on it? Is it hype? Do we need to be concerned? Uh, again, it's a lovely question. So, no, I am. I love all things AI related and I'm also extremely cynical. So in my mind, the way to think about AI is it's a technology. And I think a good mental model is that it's a prediction technology. And what, 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 there's, a, there's a brilliant book, for those who are interested, a brilliant book called Prediction Machines um, on, on this topic. And, and, and there's articles online if people don't want to read the book. But the way, the way that, 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 that this book describes it is to say, look, pre predictions are important because they are inputs into decisions. And... The way you should think about what's happening in the world of AI is that the cost of prediction has, has really massively reduced. Um, lots of decisions we make, again, coming back to your decisions, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in a supermarket, predicting how many carrots you're going to sell. That's a prediction decision. Um, but what's also really important is that a prediction is not a decision. You know, a, a prediction, of, you know, we think we might, uh, there's a distribution of how many carrots we'll sell or a a churn prediction or a fraud prediction, um, that needs to be combined with human judgment to actually make a decision. Um, and whether it's a human you know, controlling a parameter, whether it's a human override, you, you go wrong when you think that, that AI is making decisions. Some human who's programmed something in the background so first thing is have a good mental model that this stuff is not magic uh, or it's making predictions and predictions are always going to be. The second thing is what I'm advising people is to say, start with a decision, you know, start with a part of the business that you, that is worth a big dollar value 
um, where you've got good data and where you think that making better decisions would drive business value. So you might say, look, we've got a big customer fraud issue or we've got a massive um, overstock problem or we had terrible markdowns last season. And so start off with a quantified business problem. Um, and then for me, it's like, well, unpack that problem and try and work out like, how can we use AI technology to make better decisions? And those better decisions could be, we can, we can be more surgical, we can be faster, we can, we can have a, a better objective, um, but we are being really, we, we have our, a single-minded focus on, there is a business problem and we've got some cool technology um, and where stuff goes wrong, is where people have what I end up, what I describe as science projects, where you've got a sort of a team doing some generative AI stuff, but it's totally disconnected with, with a business problem. Um, and then I think this stuff is hard. You know, anything to do with technology is hard. None of this technology is magic. Um, and so you need a mindset, which is, you know, um, we, we're not trying, we're not seeking perfection. You know, we're just trying to be better. And we need to create sort of a mindset of continuous optimization. Um, so look, I think this technology is real. It's very, very powerful. It's not going anywhere. Um, but I think it's probably going to be more about augmenting humans than it is about replacing, replacing humans. Um, and I think that the, the successful retailers will be the ones that, that really think about these sort of human machine themes. Um, Paul, what you were doing 25 years ago, which was system recommends, human approves, that is that is a very powerful mental model. You know, um, you know, don't 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 have the humans doing it all manually, but also don't think that you can just delegate to the machine. Yeah, I guess people think you know that some sort of silver bullet, or uh, you know, this is the nirvana that we want. All of a sudden, the computers will get the ordering and the markdowns perfect. I think that's. Uh, Maybe we've got to wait a little bit longer than that. So, and, and you've sort of answered this. So here I am. Yes. In my retail business, I've got this problem with whatever it might be, markdowns, the bit. I'm thinking, okay, this is a good place to start with my AI project. But there is so much information out there. Clearly, a lot of it's rubbish. Uh, yes. As, as people, there's a bit of a land grab. So. Yes. Other than hiring you to, yes. to come and tell the business, I mean, where do you start? So somebody, somebody no, recently said to me, what do I do on Monday? Yeah. So, you, you know, somebody's listened yeah. to this, it's piqued their interest. They're going, okay, we really need to get a grip of this. What do I do on Monday to actually start to understand what I should be doing with AI? No, you hire us. I think that okay. is that. That's <laughs> Uh, no, I think I think the key is you 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 really have to dive. You've got to, to to immerse yourself in the data. So let me bring this to life. Let, let's let's take let's take markdowns as an issue. Um, you know, someone will say, okay, you know, we we, we had a you know our sales fuel price sell through last, last season was horrible. It was fifty five percent. You know, we really need to improve that. Um, don't like averages. Um, averages are the enemy. So for me, the first thing is to take, whether it's, you know, a markdown dollar value, whether it's a, a full price sell through percentage and really unpack that, de-average it. And when you say the hour, when I say de-average it, I mean, look at the most atomic level possible. So whether that is 
at SKU level, um, at SKU store level, at customer level, what you will often find is people will analyze by category or by segment. But really, the action is all around at the sort of, you know, as we say, at the atomic level detail. And what one sees um, is when you start looking at really at the customer level and the SKU level and the SKU store level, that's where you see the opportunities. It was in the public domain. I think ASOS um, mentioned that they, they, in their last report, that I think they found 6% of their customer base that was losing them 100 million pounds a year who were systematically returning 100% of everything they bought. Um, in my experience, when, when, when you look at this really atomic level, you know, like looking at your business under a microscope, you start seeing opportunities. Challenge is, you know, if you've got, if you're looking, you know, at SKU store level and you've got millions of SKU store combination, you clearly can't do that manually. And that's where then you need the automation and the AI start saying okay actually we can start making much much more surgical decisions so for example we have a number of clients who are thinking and looking at how do i do personalized promotions at a SKU store level you know if i'm overstocked on some size 14 jeans in a particular store there's no reason to, to, to mark it down mark down the product what i want to do is talk to specific customers about a specific skew at a specific price. Um, if I've got, you know, when, 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 when all of our customer analysis, you know, when you look at um, any metric, whether it's returns, whether it's promotions, whether it's markdowns, there is no average customer. You've got a bunch of customers who only buy at full price. You've got a bunch of customers who only buy at markdown. You've got customers who are half and half. And so the opportunity is how do we, how are we just more surgical? How do we move from having very blunt conversations? So back to your specific of your question is you start with a problem and you really interrogate that problem and you dig deep, you dig deep into really looking at the data um, at the most granular level possible um, to really understand where the opportunities are. Hmm. Um, and it's real work. It, it, it's, it's like it, it's not it's not something you can do um you know with a finger in the air you've got to really go and do the work but my experience of this now again over a very long period is you're always going to find opportunities you're just always going to find opportunities and and do you think this is so pivotal and important to retail that we're going to be talking about the demise of certain retailers in five ten years 15 years time maybe as some of those that have gone under over the last few years, and we think, well, actually, that started with something they didn't do a decade ago, which has led to a slow decline. Do you think there's there's this possibility that those retailers that don't implement AI, we're going to be looking at them when they go under in a decade going, well, that's probably because they didn't embrace this when the time was there? Look, it's a, it's a really interesting question. I, I think you probably go back five years to the birth of the internet and you say look i remember you know in 2001 it's like if people weren't embracing the internet you know they were idiots um i mean um primark one of the most, most successful retailers on the planet you know i think they, they finally embraced the internet in in whatever it was 2020 um about 20 years too late but no one would accuse them of not being a successful business so i think Fundamentally, um, propositions are 
um, you know, a great proposition uh, will always is always the most important thing. If your proposition is compelling, um, frankly, you can do a lot of bad things, and and and, and customers will 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 still buy from you. Um, if your proposition is way past its sell by date, frankly, no AI or data is going to help. But I think there's a bunch in the middle. I think there's definitely a bunch in the middle where we will probably we will probably say that what separated out the winners from the losers um, are, are the ones that really got their heads around how can they run their businesses, you know, smarter, faster, more efficiently. Yeah, interesting. So maybe you and I should confer after and, and put some names on a in a little we should bury them. Uh, and it, and if we get it right, we'll uh, we'll lord the fact in a decade. If we get it wrong, everybody <laughs> have forgotten that we buried it anyway. So uh, maybe that's the way for. So so, where is and how far and why? Yeah, where when you're talking to your clients, and I'm assuming at some point they'll say, "Where's the AI journey going to go in the next two, three, five, ten years?" Yes. Crystal ball out for the moment because you've made a few. Good bets and predictions over the years. So uh, you know, I think most people should be listening to your thoughts. What what, what what's your sort of uh, opinion on on where we're going to go? So, with I think again, you know, there's many there's many flavors of of, of, of AI. Um, there's many flavors of, of AI. You know, you think about AI as an automation technology. Um, you can think about it um, more in terms of say generative AI. Um, in terms of anything that's to do with creating words and pictures, um, where sort of AI comes in, and also you think about um, natural language as sort of different types. There's many flavors of AI. I think that smart businesses are, as you said, are sort of really anchoring in where is their business value. And so if you sort of cut forward a few years, what I think we will find is businesses will be able to operate more efficiently. Um, they will be making more surgical decisions. So, so you know, higher margins, higher sell-throughs, less, less waste, less write-off, um, because they will be able to sort of run their businesses in a sort of more surgical fashion. I think what Gen AI will allow them to do will be to do more hyper-personalization. So again, that will just allow them to create more content, more personalized, better customer service, more intelligent chatbots, you know, better online search. So I, I don't think these things are necessarily revolutionary. I think that, you know, it'll allow good businesses to be better. And I doubt it will save bad businesses. But I certainly think, you know, for the good businesses out there that can be smart about how they corral all this tech and they don't get misty-eyed that this stuff is magical. Um, but they really focus on, you know, solving customer pain points. I think there's lots of there's lots of great opportunities. There's lots of great opportunities. And so I think what you know, I think you can all imagine in the future, you you know, your 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 ability to interact with 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 websites in a much more interactive way. Again, if you're talking to a, a, a retailer that sells a million products online. And, and the discovery experience is really painful, yeah, generative AI is gonna be amazing. If you're talking to a retailer that sells 20 things online, you know what, don't build the Gen AI search box, that's not your problem. So I think again, 
all of these things are powerful when they're anchored in in real in real problems and opportunities. Yeah, right solution, right place, right time. I guess uh, holds true regardless. So uh, I think absolutely, it's very easy to forget. So look, uh, uh, unbelievably uh, insightful, and uh, uh, I should be certainly listening back to this, making a few notes on conference topics and uh, and, and and businesses to look out for. But you personally, Michael, so ton of things going on. What what can we yes. expect from you in the next 12 to 18 months? What's on your horizon? Great question. So I I've got I've got probably two big things that I am worrying about at the moment. What one is having written sort of the customer base audit book, and you know, probably two, three years ago, my conversations with retailers was a lot around what is customer centricity, why do we need to bother, you know. That conversation is now over every business I'm talking to is saying, look, we absolutely get now post-COVID the need to put customers at the sort of heart of what we do. The challenge they're saying is, look, but we, what do we actually do? You know, we get customer centricity. What do we actually do on a Monday morning? One of the things I'm thinking about is sort of connecting customer profit to business logic. You know, how do you go from thinking about customer profitability to actually what, what levers you need to, you need to pull? And so that's a really big, big theme. And then linked to this is, again, a big theme back to my example of viewed availability. What do you measure? What, what is, uh, you know, big theme I'm talking to businesses about is measure what matters. And it's very easy to oversimplify and say, you know, we need five metrics to run our business. That doesn't work. But equally, having a thousand KPIs on a Monday morning is no, no good to anybody. So I think there is a real, um, a real challenge um, of, of sort of measure what matters philosophy of how to understand. And look, I, I, you know, I'm wearing a Fitbit. As we all know, you know, um, I was pretty fit before I started wearing a Fitbit. Being confronted every morning by these barrage of statistics of sleep stats doesn't make you fitter, doesn't make you sleep better. How you translate measurement into insight and action that I'm I'm spending a lot of brain cycles thinking about. And, and is there a um, uh, is there a book or a business on the horizon? I've got to ask you. If, if you're thinking about it, then, then this is just you and I talking now, Michael. There's nobody else <laughs> of course. listening. So, no, so look, this, as a business, this is, I think, what edited what we are trying to crack because this is very central to our, our, our sort of vision. Um, uh, I was talking to one of my co-authors yesterday and talking to him about the topic, and he said, Michael, I think we're going to need to write another book. So um, I will get told off by my wife because she's banned me from writing another book, but um, I think it might have to be done. Well, I shall look forward to that uh, uh, beach read in the near future. <laughs> uh, so another ribbon if you want. But uh, Michael, thank you so much indeed for taking the time to join me. It has been fascinating, and uh, and I feel like we could have had a seven-hour uh, podcast recording quite easily. So we'll definitely have to get you back on in the future. But for now, thank you very much indeed for uh, for joining me. Thank you, Paul.